All right, we're going to get back into Nehemiah. It's been a great series um, in this great book, and we're going to keep plugging through here. Let's pray together. Father God, it's great to be in your presence, um, especially after, after a week that some of us may have had where there was a lot of uh, stress, maybe a lot of anxiety, maybe um, a relationship that is turning sour, uh, maybe uh, an illness that was just found. Um, whatever the hardship is, uh, we know that one day and every day we can cry out hallelujah. Uh, that if we know and follow Jesus Christ, we have a, a great hope in glory. And in the meantime, we've got a lot of work to do here. Uh, I pray that a peace that passes all understanding would, would guard our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. I pray that the words of your scripture would sink deep into our soul. Maybe for the first time, something that we thought was complicated or, or too hard to understand, maybe for the first time today, you, you would open up a window into our heart with your scripture to point to areas that, that we need to be aware of. Maybe to point to a heart that doesn't know you at all and to be um, regenerated, to be made new today. God, I pray that as we um, get to the end of this great book, that you would continue to work in us and through us as individuals and more importantly as the body of Christ sent to the city of Denver, its surrounding suburbs, on a mission to see your glory unfold. I pray that that would always be our mission, that that would always be our desire to see your glory unfold in this great city. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have uh, either recently heard or maybe heard one time this phrase, you don't know what you're getting into? You heard that one before? Um, I'm Swedish, and so just by genetic right, we're stubborn and, and stoic and think that we can handle anything. And so many times I've taken on way more uh, than I can chew. And I've heard that phrase, you don't know what you're getting into. It's actually my favorite counseling line. If you ever come to me and ask for help, I'm going to say, man, you just don't know what you're getting into. Um, Sometimes we can make commitments that are bigger than our ability to follow through on those commitments. Uh, sometimes we can promise to do something or to be somebody that in the end we can't deliver on. Uh, I was a, a 10-year-old kid. I was living in Estes Park, which as many of you know is right near Rocky Mountain National Park. And as a 10-year-old, my church had... This elderly gentleman, seasoned citizen, he was at least 65, maybe 70 years old, and he worked with the youth of our church, and he challenged some of us one day in our church uh, youth ministry to climb with him Long's Peak. Um, Long's Peak is tough, okay? Who's climbed Long's Peak? Anybody? Yeah. Few of us. The elite, okay? Uh, I've had the... Uh, not the privilege. I've had the hardship of climbing Long's Peak a couple of times, a few times. Um, 
You know, and when you're a 10 year old and you're looking at a 65 year old man asking you to climb a mountain that is probably one of the toughest 14ers, if not the toughest 14er in the state of Colorado, when he asks you to do that, and you're like, well, if you can do it, I can do it. And he said, now it's going to be a big commitment because, you know, we're, we're going to have to not only climb that mountain, but there's going to be some stuff involved with that, and we'll get to that later. But I want to know right now who is committed to climb this mountain with me. And so several of us raised our hand. Well, about a week later, uh, while I was eating my Cocoa Puffs, watching cartoons, uh, my mom walked into the room and said, hey, um, I don't know if you know this, but one of the training hikes is for you to climb Twin Sisters. Twin Sisters is, is another mountain that's not quite as high as Long's Peak, but very difficult hike, all-day hike. I said, no problem. So I got my backpack, 10-year-old. I was a little bit uh, arrogant. Went with this elderly gentleman and he worked us over. It was horrible. And it's at that moment where I realized, I think I've made a commitment that it's going to be impossible for me to follow through. Not only did the twin sisters hike really stink, it was horrible. But a couple weeks later was the big Long's Peak. And man, I thought, you know, you wake up at 10 o'clock, you're on the summit by 1030. The rest McDonald's, you know, is up there waiting for you with a, with a Happy Meal at that time or a Big Mac meal uh, for a current day. Uh, but you, it's just no big deal. You just walk up, you eat dinner, you come back, no big deal. We left at 2.30 in the morning. I, had, I didn't know 2.30 in the morning existed when we went on that hike. To make a long story short... I've been on that hike with several people, and every one of them, I think, would admit to, I had no idea how difficult the commitment that I made was going to be to follow through on. Um, this is the transition that even though th- this hike was really hard, making commitments sometimes require more of us than we can possibly follow through on. And one of those commitments that I think a lot of us are making or have made as we've gone through this series is I want to become a better person or I want to see this city changed and I want to do it on my own. And for those of you who are here today saying that to yourself, saying I want to be a better person, noble goal, and I want to do that on my own, that is the part of it that is going to get you into a lot of trouble because you have made a commitment to follow Christ And to be a disciple of his, if you've made that commitment, you cannot follow through on your own power to do that thing. Just like when we look into the city and we see all of the things that we need to address and how the church and the people of God can go into the city and make a difference. We all want to do that, but we've made a commitment that we can't follow through uh, on, on our own power. We can't do it without the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why, and this is a Christian principle, if you want to write this down. This is, just, this is just good theology. Worship always comes before commitment. Worship, the thing that you are devoted to, the thing that you love, the thing that consumes your soul, whatever it is, that comes before the commitment to whatever thing you've made a goal. And so for Christians, the worship of Jesus Christ comes before our commitment can be established because it's only through his power that we can fulfill that. So here's a question. What was the last commitment that you made to the Lord and what was your plan to get there? 
Um, I do this all the time. Maybe, maybe your commitment was, I'm going to clean up my life. God, will you wait for me in about two years? I'm going to get sober. I'm going to become more moral. I'm going to become better behaved. I'm going to restore relationships. Just wait a little bit down the road for me. And soon I will get there. And then um, I'll be a radical follower of yours. And I'll have cleaned myself up so that you'll accept me. That you'll, that you'll be um, more satisfied with me. I'll do this commitment, but I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to clean up my life. Maybe, maybe your commitment has been, I'm going to work harder. I've been convicted about maybe my work ethic and how I approach my job or my vocation or the responsibilities that I have. So I'm going to work harder. So Lord, let me start working harder and then you'll be pleased with me. And then you can, you know, come alongside of me and be my, my, my friend and my Lord and, and my savior. Here's, here's a big one. I'm going to love better. How many of us want to love better, right? I do. I know that many times my heart doesn't love the way it should. So, Lord, I'm going to love better. And you wait down the road. Once I begin to love better and I change the way that I approach people and my relationships and other people, maybe even people who are my enemies, under my own effort, I will love better. And then, Lord, you can be a part of my life. The plans to get there are always geared towards what we will do rather than what Christ has already done on the cross. That's the only way that we will be able to fulfill a commitment. Worship comes before commitment. And Christianity provides a way to commitment that is not through moral effort or us doing something more, but through the power of Christ crucified. That's what distinguishes Christianity from every other belief, um, or as I'm fond of calling them, ism, asm, or spasm of life. That's what is different about us. We believe that the power of Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again, filling us with His Holy Spirit, that is what produces within us a changed heart that desires to follow through on the commitment that we have made to love better, to work harder, to clean up our life. That is where the power comes from, from Christ crucified. So worship always produces the commitment. Now, I go into this in a lot of uh, detail because in our culture, we are so motivated to do it on our own because our identity is wrapped up in what we achieve or what we accomplish, even in the Christian life. I know many of you, even sitting here today, probably coming back to church, maybe like checking it out and saying, man, I have been burned by churches so many times because I wasn't moral enough. I didn't love good enough. I didn't work hard enough. And everyone around me was looking at me, my Christian brothers and sisters, to achieve more so that they would accept me more. That is not what Jesus ha- has shown us. He says, follow me, worship me, and your heart will be transformed and you will have commitment produced in your life. So this is the question. If worship produces commitment, what is worship? Well, a lot of people think of worship of what we've just done here this morning and what we will continue to do. We have music. Um, we have communion. We have prayer together. We have the preaching of God's word. And, you know, we, we maybe give of our tithes and offerings. That, that is worship. 
That is part of worship. That is the corporate gathering of God's people to do something that we call worship. But worship is more than that. This is the definition of worship. Worship is the place where you have full devotion, full attention, but most importantly, you have fullness of love towards that, hopefully, person, Jesus Christ. That's worship. Where are you devoted? Where does your heart go when you have an opportunity to to just let it go where it wants? Does it go to money? Does it go to a relationship? Does it go to your career? Or is, is it directed? Is your love directed? Your affection is what the old guys used to call it. Your affection, is it drawn towards Christ? Who or what do you really love? What is the affection of your soul and where is it directed? Because if you want to make a difference in this city and you want Christ to make a difference in your life, it will begin and end with the worship of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to look at the Israelites because they make a covenant, a commitment to God. And we're going to see that the worship that they've had in the past several chapters has produced a commitment. And that commitment is very practical. Okay. It's not esoteric. It's not hard to understand. There's parts of it that you can think about and wonder about. But this worship is very practical. So this is our first teaching from this passage. And I'm not going to read all of of chapter 10. Uh, Please feel free to read this. But I've got a highlight um, so that we can get through this whole chapter today. Worship produces commitment, which produces something called sanctification. Sanctification. We're going to be um, looking a little bit at verses 28 through 31 to talk um, about this particular point. Worship produces commitment, which produces something called sanctification. Now, sanctification is a big word. Um, I want you guys to take your cameras and at the water cooler tomorrow say to somebody, random Joe, hey, you want to talk about some sanctification? I just want to see what their responses will be. It's a big word. Now, scripturally and biblically, theologically, sanctification is the same as holiness, which as I've talked about many times before, is wholeness. Okay? So to be sanctified is to be holy, and to be holy is to live as God intended you to live, obeying all that He has commanded, as it talks about in Matthew chapter 28. It's living as you were created to live under the rule and love of God. The word literally means set apart, set apart. Now, for the Israelites in this passage, it meant for them that they were going to be separate from the people that were around them. And that wasn't a racial thing. It was a holiness thing. It wasn't a racial thing. It was a holiness thing. They were not to live like those that were around them because those that were around them weren't worshiping God. Now, we don't think that that's very practical. That's really practical today. We're surrounded by people. And, and you know, Paul says to treat people who don't know Christ with a great deal of love and respect and understanding that because they don't know Jesus, they're just living it out what, what's not inside of their life. Christ isn't there. So they're just living out what their natural job description is without Christ. But there, there is a sense for the Christian and for the follower of God that we are to live differently and we're to do it not out of behavior modification, but because of God's love for us. We're to live differently. 
You, your life reflects the power of God transforming a heart. And when people see that kind of power, they are drawn to Christ. That's one way that we are missionaries on a mission to see God's glory is through our life being different than the life that is around us, uh, living under the rule and love that God has given us through the, his scriptures, that is to be set apart. So Paul says, now it, it's gotten weird, right? Down through history, we've said to be set apart. And all of a sudden, you know, some guy is standing up here like I am and saying, I bought a compound up in the mountains and we're, we're physically setting ourselves apart. We're going to have a big, you know, the zombies are going to come. We're going to have the wall. Okay. And those who aren't zombies, you know, if you ever thought of some of the parallel of all the zombie stuff, okay. Some people like are going to flee. They're going to set themselves apart from the people around them physically. That is not what being set apart means. Okay, this is one of my favorite idioms of wisdom. You can't physically set yourself apart because there's a, there's a little truth. Wherever you go, there you are. Think about that. Okay. I went to DU and took a philosophy class to learn that one, okay? Wherever you go, there you are. It's not a physical separation. Paul, in fact, says that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Because Paul knows that when Jesus transforms a heart, that heart is changed. That heart begins to live for, for Christ and to proclaim his power to change a person's life to those around them. We need that in our world. We need our world to see changed people. Not, not moral people per se. I think the change produces a morality, but a changed people. Um, it's not a cage of legalism. It's a world of freedom for our soul. Being set apart is not a cage of legalism. It is a world of freedom for our soul. And, and this is the second part of this. It's rooted in God's law. Don't raise your hand and don't say anything out loud, okay? I'm, I'm cautioning you. How many of you love your Bible? Okay? How many of you love the Ten Commandments? Like, you don't look at them as a cage of legalism with, you know, Big Daddy God in the sky getting ready to spank you and take you to the woodshed every time you disobey it. You look at it as a lover. Wow! The God of the universe gave me these Ten Commandments, gave me His Bible to tell me what it means to be holy, holiness. That, that's that's what, where this sense of being set apart is rooted. It's rooted in the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and all the nuances and practical implications of those commandments bring set-apartness to our lives. Our, understand, uh, excuse me, our understanding of what it mean, means to live holy is rooted in understanding God's revelation to us through the Bible. That's why we go through the Bible. That's why we encourage you to read the Bible. That's why we encourage you when you have a question, a big question in life. The Bible isn't the last place you go. It's the first place you go. It, it, it is the source of our set-apartness, which is for our joy and for our good. Um, the Bible, even in Matthew 28, 
Jesus says that we're to go make disciples and we're to teach them to do something, which is this, to obey every command, to obey every command. Now, a lot of people get look at that and say, man, that's a lot of commands. That's going to be a lot of Excel spreadsheets on my moral behavior chart. And that is not what he is intending. He's intending in obeying every command, you will have the fullest life possible. Okay, I think I've hit that one pretty hard. The power to do this, again, is not in moral effort, but in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the promise of the Holy Spirit to direct and empower us. And it's rooted in God's law. Lastly, set apart means in this particular section, very practical, set apart means to marry other believers. And I have to talk about this because it gets really uh, messed up through, through people who just are, you know, a little bit cynical, I think, about Christianity and the Bible. Um, throughout Scripture, God uh, teaches us, even in the New Testament, He teaches that it's important for a believer, a follower of Christ, to marry another believer. Now, this is why this is tough. Some of us didn't do that. Some of us didn't do that. Now, that doesn't mean that you are suddenly now on the JV of the Christian life. It just means that it's going to be a little bit more difficult for you um, to, to follow and glorify Jesus because you're not connected in oneness to a person who wants to follow and worship Jesus. So the teaching in the New Testament tells us, for those of you who, who didn't marry maybe another believer, it tells us to stay married to that unbelieving spouse so that they can be one to Christ, if at all possible. And there are times, and I've met people who have been married, and one was a follower of Christ, one wasn't a follower of Christ. And, and till the day that one of them died, the other person didn't become a follower of Christ. It was a tragedy. It was sad. It was a, a grieving experience for that person. And some of us are in that situation that we might need to stay married to our unbelieving spouse so that they can be one to Christ. But there are times where that doesn't happen. But I have known spouses who have stayed with their unbelieving husband or wife. And again, this is without abuse, abandonment, or adultery. That's not acceptable. Abuse, abandonment, and adultery. I've known people who have stayed until death do they part. And it's been sad, but that person has wanted to see their husband or wife come to know Jesus. That's admirable. That is a, that is a fruit of a changed life. Now, some of you, I go into this uh, maybe a little bit uh, longer than I should, but for you to be set apart means to marry other believers. And some of you haven't married yet. And this is what I would say for you. Over and over in Scripture, it is commanded of us to not be unequally yoked, meaning for one believer to marry another believer. And this is what some advice to those of you who aren't married yet. Pursue Jesus, and as you're pursuing Him, look to your side and see who is running the race towards Christ, in Christ, with you, and marry that person. We are big fans of marriage. Big fans of marriage. Um, partly because we like to have a large children's ministry. Okay. But the reason we are big fans of marriage is because the covenant of marriage, the commitment of marriage is a picture of Jesus and his church. 
And your marriage, unless you've been called to celibacy and singleness, your marriage is a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, for those of us, not me, but this has happened before, but for those who may have been in a fight on the way over here with your spouse, um, you might not have felt like that was a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. You know how it is? Is because as you work something that you think is impossible out under the power of Jesus Christ crucified, you are saying to the world that Jesus will cover all the sins of the church. He will love and lead his church no matter what happens. And his power can resurrect, can restore, can revitalize any marriage, any Christian marriage. That's a proclamation of his good news. See, because good news always entails us not being able to do something that only Jesus can do. That's why it's good news. Um, if it was up to me, it would never be good news. Second teaching of this passage, and we'll end with this. Worship produces commitment, which produces generosity. So worship will produce commitment, which will produce set-apartness or holiness. And it will also produce, according to verses 32 through 38, we see the Israelites have a, a heart of generosity. Here we go, the money talk. You've all been waiting for it. Did we charge tickets for today? Okay. Um, you guys aren't going to like my money jokes at all. That's okay. I'm going to say all of them. Um, the Israelites. Okay, the Israelites. Let's get back to the passage. Um, the Israelites come back to the city. They rebuild the wall. They start to inhabit the town where they're at. They're setting up leadership. They're setting up all of the temple and all of the things that they, they need to get going to make the city get, get, get together. They start reading God's word. They pray together. They repent of their sin. They confess their sin. It's all a worshipful act. All of this is to worship God. And then in this passage, they get to this place where they, and this is the word from the text, they obligate themselves to give generously to the worship of God. They obligate themselves. Meaning they stand before everybody and they make a commitment in front of everybody. Hey, this is an obligation. We must do this for the worship of God to continue and the, to, to respond to the grace and the mercy, the grace upon grace, the mercy that he has shown us. We are going to give generously to the worship of God. Now, what do they give according to this passage? They give money. They give money. Um, it's great to give other things and we'll talk about other things, but these folks, uh, emptied up some money the, the, they call it tithe, uh, or offerings in, in the old Testament, the same type of language is used in the new Testament. They give money to the worship or to the, the gathering and the worship of God. They give resources. It says first fruits. Okay. So first fruits in this setting is when they would have a harvest of crops or a harvest of animals or whatever it was, they would commit the first fruits, not the worst fruits, the first fruits to the worship of God. They would bring it to the temple for the worship. What else do they give? Time. Time. They gave a lot of time, right? They were building a wall. They were helping their neighbors build their homes. They would put off building their own home until their neighbor uh, home was built. They were re, uh, trying to rebuild the place where they were going to worship God. So they would give a lot of their time. And 
this was a big one. They gave their children. So today after the service, I would like for all of you to bring your... No, that's really weird, okay? Uh, But these folks committed their children to the worship of God. Can I bridge that from that time and that context to today? You are not the owner of your child. You are the steward of your child. If you remember the story, and this is why we dedicate children, if you remember the story of Hannah um, dedicating her her son Samuel um, to to the the priesthood or to be working in the temple with the other priests, um, you remember she was a, a barren woman. And in that story, you see that her attitude is one of, this isn't my possession. This child is not mine. I'm committing, I'm dedicating him back to the Lord. I'm to be a steward. So, so practically, parents, please listen. I have a son going to be a junior in high school. I was on my phone yesterday, and this is probably because my, my lack of technological savvy. I haven't emptied this photo out of my photo thing on my phone. I've literally got like 9,000 photos on my phone, okay? Um, one of them is of my three-year-old, maybe two-and-a-half, three-year-old son who is now a junior. Chubby cheeks, standing with his cousin, looking like they just did something they shouldn't have done. And like this, he's gone. He's not gone. He's getting gone. Okay? He's a junior, I've got two years with him left in my home and maybe some more, you know, depending on how the college thing goes. And he's starting to think about what am I going to do with my life? And, and what am I going to do as a vocation, a calling? What is my calling in this world? And how am I going? And all of these big questions. And it went like this. It's gone. And you know, one of the great things uh, about, and folks, we did not do it perfectly. Okay. But we tried. Okay. We tried. We tried to be a good steward of our children. We didn't do it perfectly. I just want to reiterate that. And I want to reiterate that because I think a lot of times parents look at the pastor and say, ah, perfect dad, perfect mom. I'll never get to that point. I'm not going to even try. If you could see behind this, you would know that we are not the perfect dad. Kristen is the perfect mom. Aaron is not the perfect dad. But you know what we wanted our kids to do? We wanted them to know the Word of God. We wanted them to have a heart to serve. We wanted them to love the church. That last one's been a little bit difficult at times, but we want them to love the church. And we want them to love the mission of God on this planet. And so, just recently, um, because at the beginning of their lives... And it's not never too late. Like if you have a junior, it's, this isn't too late. You can do it today. At the beginning of their lives, I tried to tell God, God, I am not the possessor, the owner of these children. I am the steward of them. If you, God, if you don't come through with them, we're in a lot of trouble. I'm giving them to you because I can't even come close to doing this well. And God has so many times overcome my sin and my mistakes and my lack of attention to what I'm supposed to be doing as as daddy. 
And it's now at a point where my son, who will be a junior, has approached me and said, Hey, Dad, you and I, um, we need to have what we call a fight club in, in our church, which is, you know, a, a, a group of guys, two or three guys getting together, reading God's word, talking about life, talking about what's going on. You know, what are the dark places in our heart that need to be brought to the light? What are the, the places where we're seeing a lot of victory? Just, he, he, he approached me. That's God. When you give your children to the worship of God and you obligate yourselves to do so along with your money, your resources, your time, and, and God, will, God will keep them. He will draw them to Himself. Nothing I have done has created that desire in my son. I mean, it's overwhelming to have a 16-year-old kid come to you and say, Dad, I want you to read the Bible with me and I want you to answer some of my questions and I want to study this area of theology and I want to go on this mission trip or I want to... And it's, it's God doing that. That's why the Israelites obligated themselves because they knew that's the only place where this would happen. The commitment of generosity of the Israelites with their money, resources, time, and children is astounding. Matthew Henry, one of the commentators that I like to read when I'm studying for sermons, said this. The commitment was, was so great and so astounding. Matthew Henry said this, quote, They would liberally maintain the temple service, and this is the important part, and not starve it. That's generosity. That's, that, that is opening up your heart to say, God, the first thing that I'm going to do is give to the work of your kingdom and give to the work of, of the people that you have called to lead and guide and be a part of this. I want to be a part of this as well. It's the first thing that I want to do. I can only speak from my personal experience, but I'm starting to hear these stories in our church a lot. When people are committed to making that the first priority of their life, God does some crazy amazing things. The biggest thing He does is He releases you from the anxiety and the worry and the, the problem of thinking that money is God. And, and He'll push you towards trusting in His provision and then you'll just be more generous. I can't explain the joy that I've received in trusting in God's provision when I have and being generous with what He has given. So how much of your worry and anxiety in life is tied to money? The antidote is worship. Worship produces commitment, which produces generosity. God says we can trust Him for salvation, and if that is true, we can trust His provision. Where are you generous? That is who or what you are worshiping. Where are you generous? Because that's where you're worshiping. You might be generous with yourself. Well, what does that mean? You're worshiping yourself. I think that's the biggest American idol is not Simon Cowell. Okay? It's me. It's me. And it's, it's, it's infiltrated our culture like a cancer. We worship me. Let me finish with this. Set apart... Here's a question to ask yourself to, to apply this passage and to apply this teaching to your life. How are you living like the world 
And how are you living for Christ? It's a, it's a very easy question. And the delineation is, what does Scripture say will bring wholeness to my life? What am I not obeying that I should be obeying? Or, and not should because that will earn more favor with God, but because He's already loved me, I want to please Him. I want to obey Him. What is it in Scripture that, that looks more like the world than it looks like living for Christ? It is not behavior modification, but worship will produce wholeness in your life. Generosity. Have you looked at where you spend money recently? And as you look at where you spend money, as you look at your budget, hopefully you have one of those, it's just good wisdom, but as you looked at your budget, where does the church fit in? Where do the poor fit in? Where do other ministries that are committed to seeing the proclamation of the gospel move forward, where do they fit in? Um, Jesus, and I've said this a thousand times, he talked about two things a lot. He talked about hell and money. He talked a lot about those two things. And I think he knows that the human heart has always, since the fall of Adam in the garden, has always been prone to chase the dollar. And chasing the dollar is like an experience I had when I was a, a wee lad in Estes Park and there was some sort of varmint, okay? I think it was up on Trail Ridge Road and there was one of those marmots, okay? Those big furry animals. They look like they don't even walk, let alone run. Looks like they just roll. And so I thought I could catch one. And that thing, I would get close and it would just skip real fast. And then I'd get a little closer and I ended up trying to dive for it. I ran after that thing and I think it actually was laughing at me at the end of this excursion. Chasing dollars is the exact same experience. You will never catch what you're looking for because what you're looking for is wholeness in Christ. And he says, generosity produced by commitment, which is produced by worship, will transform the heart. You will let go of the white knuckling of your funds, your money, your wallet, your checkbook, and you'll begin to experience what it means to have wholeness in Christ. We're going to come to the communion table today. Um, for our city to be changed, it's going to take people who are set apart not because they can do it on their own, but because Christ is changing their life. He is forming in them a new heart. And it's going to take generous people. People who are generous with their time, their labor, their resources, their children. For the glory of God. This table is remembering that only through the power of what Christ did on the cross is the, uh, uh, are we able to do that. His body broken, His blood shed. And we are to celebrate. We are to come here saying, I can't do it. I've made a commitment that I can't possibly follow through on. Only through Christ is this possible. So when you come to the table, don't leave here with the baggage of your guilt and shame. Bring it to the table. Bring it to Jesus' cross. He was crucified for it. He rose again. He is coming again. 
In the meantime, let's keep working towards rebuilding our city by worshiping Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that one day every knee in Denver, in Highlands Ranch, in Castle Rock, in Inglewood, in Littleton, in Aurora, in Thornton, in Broomfield, in Boulder, in all of these suburbs, in all of our cities, every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. Every tongue in those same places, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so today, the the proclamation of the gospel looks like us being sanctified, set apart, made whole only by you. It looks like us being generous for the work of your kingdom. Not because we're special elite Christians, but because you freed us from the clutches, the snare, the enslavement of chasing after things, money, whatever it is that won't satisfy. As we come to the table today, we pray that the power of the cross not only will forgive us of our sin, but will empower us through your Holy Spirit to be people who love Jesus and want others to know him as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.